0: Good afternoon. Feels like a long time since we've got to say that to you guys. Glad to see you all made it to the new time and the new place. I'm thankful for uh, Crossway, as well as Jordan said, to have this opportunity uh, to worship together, pray together, and to continue in the book of Revelation. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation 2. Revelation 2, as we continue to work our way through these letters. <clears throat> I know it's been months, but we're about halfway through the letters. The letter to the church in Thyatira, at the end of uh, chapter 2, excuse me. Revelation 2, verses 18 to 29. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, Who has eyes like a flame of fire, And whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we draw near to you now because of the work of Christ. pray that your Spirit would work as we gather around your Word that you would convict us, you would call us to repentance, that you would encourage us and help us persevere. Father, help us see our sinfulness and even our good works in this church, that we may be commended and encouraged, and that we may also continue in those things. But where we need to be rebuked, give us soft hearts, Lord, so that we may trust you and glorify your great name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians should be known for what they are for, not what they are against. Anyone heard that before? Christians should be known only for what they're for and for not what they are against. I feel I, I used to hear that a lot from different people. It usually came as kind of a warning from some people. They would say it as, you know, careful. You don't wanna, you don't want to get divisive, right? You don't wanna be known as one of those people that are only against stuff and kind of divide the church over it. To be honest, I was always really confused by this statement. Maybe some of you shared that. If, I, if you really think about it, can it even be possible to be for something and not against its opposite, against what corrupts it? right? I'm, I'm for truth. That means I, I hate lies. I'm for children, therefore I, I hate child abuse. That's just common sense, isn't it? You don't need the the Bible to even tell you that. You don't need special revelation. Anybody can see that. But the Bible does tell us that as Christians, we should be against things too, right? Think about the Ten Commandments, for example. What are those? Ten things that God is against, right? Ten things that God hates. That's clear there in Scripture that we see that. The Bible has been clear from the beginning that Christians are to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. So why would some even believe that this was possible? Why would some even want to put themselves in a category where they don't hate what God hates? Where they're not against the things that God are against? Well, I think it's because hating what God hates in this world can really come at a cost. It can really put a target on your back. And we know we have the freedom to proclaim the gospel, to talk about Christ and sin in this world. But we also know that this world is growing more and more hostile to our message every single day. I mean, What will you do one day when it will cost you family members not to go to a homosexual wedding? Because you you say it's a sin. You say there's no such thing as homosexual marriage. Some of you have been there. Some of you are going to be there soon. What will you do one day when preaching Christ and his gospel and sin will cost you your job? May put you in prison. May cause your family to move. I know it probably feels like those are a long ways off. I know it does for me. Those things are happening around the world right now. And scripture has been abundantly clear that if we trust Christ, if we follow Christ, we will be persecuted. So I want to ask you, what what will you do when hating what God hates really begins to cost you? Will you cave? Will you give in to the social pressure? Well, Thyatira did, and that's really what we're going to learn this morning. Thyatira actually was a church that tolerated some pretty gross immorality and sin, some false doctrine they should have never even tolerated, and Christ rebukes them for it. This letter here is is really a letter to them, but it also acts as a warning to us so that we don't fall into the same trap as this church. And so what does Christ want to say to them and to us? What do we need to be warned about? Well, it's simply this, that as Christians, we must love what God loves and hate what God hates. We must be for what God is for and against what God is against. It's not just enough to hate what God hates and not love what he loves, that's where Ephesus went wrong. You remember that, church? It's a long time ago. They were the ones that lost their first love. It's also not enough to go the other way and say, well, you can love what God loves, but not hate what God hates. And that's where Thyatira goes wrong. And so that's what we'll see in this letter. I want to draw your attention to three parts as we go through. I hope these will sound familiar as we've been going through these letters. The first is a commendation, and then a correction, and then a comfort. So Christ is going to commend them, which is they love what God loves. Then he's going to correct them. They don't hate what God hates. And then the comfort is that through repentance, they will receive Christ. So that's what we'll talk about this evening. So let's look at verse 18 together as we see this church. Let's get to know this church in Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write. Let's stop there. What do we know about the city? Well, History tells us this was essentially a Roman military outpost. It's actually further inland than a lot of these other cities we've talked about. But the city actually became known, especially for manufacturing and trade. It was actually really known at this time for two things, which was like the forging of of metal that was really strong but also pretty cheap, especially bronze. Remember that because that will come back into play here. And they were also known for the dyeing of cloth. In fact, that might bring up somebody that you remember. Lydia, right? Lydia, in Acts 16, was converted in Philippi. She was from Thyatira. If you remember, she was the one that was said she's an exporter of purple cloth. And so that's this town. I mean, really, it's a simple, blue-collar, hard-working town. Sound familiar? <laughs> the more I studied this town, the more I kept, couldn't help but thinking it sounds a lot like Bakersfield. In fact, this town is a lot less impressive than a lot of the other towns on the list before this. There's no big center for emperor worship. There's no big military presence. This would not be the notable town that everybody would recognize. But Jesus has a message to this this normal town, ordinary town. Let's see what he says, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God. Now, I I hope you recognize those words. We hear those a lot. In fact, that's one of John's favorite statements about Jesus teaching us about who he is, that he is truly God. But here's the crazy part. Son of God only appears one time in Revelation. I was shocked. I actually had to check it myself when I saw that. Because you would think Son of God was all over John's work, so why why not all over this one? Well, why specifically does Thyatira need to know that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, because this town was filled with idolatry. You can even Google this later, but if you look up, like, coins in Thyatira, on their coins, on one side of the coin is the son of Zeus, Apollos. You have a pagan god there, and then on the other side of the coin is the son of the emperor sitting on this globe holding the stars in his hands. So even on the very coins they were trading around, they had symbols of their idolatry. Plus, this town was also filled with with guilds and and union kind of things, associations, right? Like the bricklayers of uh, America or something like that. You had the the bricklayers of uh, Thyatira. That's what was going on here. And now it wouldn't be such a big deal, but these associations were related to pagan idolatry. They would actually have meetings where their members would eat Food sacrificed to idols. They would pay tribute to Zeus or these other idols. And even at times, there was a temple prostitute involved during their ceremonies. You can see the problems for Christians, can't you? Either pull yourself out of this idolatry and avoid all of that, and by doing that, you would lose your job. And not just lose your job, you would lose your ability to find work because you had to be part of these unions to even find work in this town. So there were a lot of costly decisions for these Christians. And in the middle of all this idolatry, what does Jesus want them to know? I'm the son of God. Not the son of the emperor. Not the son of Zeus. You don't worship them. You worship me. I am the only true son of God. In verse 18, who who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, this is quite the intimidating picture of Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus really as a holy judge. These eyes of fire, this picture of holiness, but really to see right through flesh and blood, to see right into our hearts. This is the one who walks among the lampstands. He's holy and he knows exactly what's going on in this church and in our church as well. And he has feet of burnished bronze. We look at that and we're like, what in the world? Why, why feet of bronze? Remember, this town was known for their bronze. It's a strong metal. And actually what Jesus is saying here, it's almost a little bit of a, an irony here saying, I know you make this really strong metal. My feet are made of even stronger metal. So that when I trample my enemies, they don't wear down. They don't become unstable. Nothing will stop my holy judgment. This is not a God you trifle with. It's really a terrifying picture of Jesus for sinners like us, isn't it? And then following this incredible picture is this wonderful commendation. It's really quite a contrast. Look at verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. I know it's been a long time since we talked about The church in Ephesus, but there's really a clear contrast here. Ephesus had service and endurance. They had faith, but the one thing they lacked, do you remember what it was? They lacked love. And right out of the gate, Jesus says, you are known, Thyatira, for your love. You're actually doing better than Ephesus. You're growing and developing. Look at the rest of the verse. And that your latter works exceed the first. You're growing in godliness You've come so far from where you were in the beginning. You're not a dead church. You're not backsliding like Pergamum or or Ephesus. No, you're the kind of church that that cares for people, sacrifices for people. It's not the type of church that's dying and everybody knows it. They're just kind of turning a blind eye. No, this is the kind of church we would want to be a part of. They would welcome you and bring you in and care for you and, and love you as Christ loves the church. I don't know about you, but this is a church that I would want to be a part of. And the shocking part is this incredible commendation is followed with one of the worst rebukes in all these letters. Now, before we get to that rebuke, that correction, I I want to stop here for a second. I think there's something we can learn from Christ here and the way he confronts this church. I think we, as a church, can grow and should grow in recognizing the grace of God in struggling churches. I don't do this often, but if you put yourself in Jesus' place here, and you were the one confronting Thyatira, what would you say? A church, as we see with really gross idolatry, I wonder if any of us would even commend them. I wonder if we would go right after their idolatry and say, you have a heretic in your church. I don't care if you're loving. I don't care if you're growing. That doesn't matter. Take care of that false doctrine or you're done. I think many of us would do that. I know my heart would want to do that. But we see our Lord deal with this church in such a gracious way. And look, this church has problems. All churches do, honestly, when you look deep enough. But Jesus is still able to see the grace. And we should too. We should be eager and excited to see God grow in struggling churches. We should be praying for struggling churches, teaching them and helping them, not gossiping about them, not writing them off as just another failed church, expecting them to fall apart and all the sheep to be scattered. No, we should be slow to speak, careful to rebuke. I'm not saying we don't rebuke, right? We need to speak the truth, and Jesus does, but it's clear he speaks the truth in love. I'm always so encouraged when we're around Ian Hamilton. He's always reminding us that the church, after all, is the bride of Christ. We should be gracious and careful as we rebuke her, because our Lord loves her, and we should too. So we've seen this commendation. Let's look now at the correction. The correction in verse 20. But I have this against you: that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now this is not a name you want associated with your church in any way, is it? Now this woman's name probably was not Jezebel. This is kind of a nickname that Jesus would give her because she's acting like Jezebel from the Old Testament. You guys remember her? Her stories in First and Second Kings. I encourage you to go read about her later. Just to preview, though, everything's bad. She is an evil, horrible woman. She married cowardly King Ahab. Do you remember him? Who really wouldn't act for God, was too um, passive to do anything, and she just took over. She brought in all of her pagan gods, led the entire northern kingdom into Baal worship. There's even that story. You remember Naboth, the servant of God, who had a vineyard, and the king wanted his vineyard? And what did Jezebel do? She went and murdered this man. Stole this vineyard from him to give to the king. She is an evil, horrible woman. And God wanted to make sure that everybody knew it. And so God judged her. Eventually she was, as it was prophesied, thrown out of a window, trampled by horses and eaten by dogs. God was not happy with Jezebel. He wanted to make sure everybody knew that. And so when Jezebel is mentioned with this church, it is a bad sign. It's assuming that she's leading them into some horrible idolatry. And that's exactly what we see. Look at verse 20 again. Right in the middle there. She calls herself a prophetess. Notice, self-proclaimed prophetess, right? I'm the one that speaks for the Lord now. Listen to me. And what does she say? She's teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. God is saying... You have a wolf at your church that's devouring your sheep. Why in the world do you tolerate her? Why won't you discipline her? Why won't you protect the church from her? It's not a sign of your love or grace or patience to keep her around. It's a sign of your foolishness, of your unfaithfulness and your lack of discernment to let this woman speak like this and destroy the church. Now, what was she doing exactly to to lead people into this idolatry? We don't know for sure. These verses are really all we get. It seems from these verses that there was some sort of accommodation to the world. Maybe it was part of these guilds and these unions. A lot of commentators believe she might have been saying things like, look, you can be around this idolatry. You can be around food sacrifice to idols. You can participate in this sexual immorality. Look, God just cares about your heart cares about your spirit. He doesn't really care what you do in your bodies. Kind of this Gnostic kind of teaching that was popular at this time. As long as you don't really mean it in your heart, God's fine with it. After all, you, you don't want to lose your business, do you? You don't want to lose your reputation and not be able to provide and care for your family. God doesn't want that. No, he wants you to witness to those people, to get in there, be a part of what they're doing, to be, to be missional right? Get in there and just live what they're doing. Have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. God will understand. He's gracious after all. Christians have justified a lot of sin over the years with these words, haven't we? We still do. Sure, we can cut corners in our business. How else are we going to be competitive? God understands. Sure, we can watch that, We can listen to that. I don't really believe it. It's kind of funny, after all. God will understand. It's the same lies. We can so easily justify our sin, just like Thyatira, in the name of comfort. Or even in the name of trying to love other people. That's what we see this church doing here. And so God is is sick of it, and he's going to do something about it. Look at verse 21. Here's the correction. I gave her time to repent does that shock you when i read this i thought for sure god was going to be like all right i'm done zapper she's dead get her out of here right flood whatever it is just get this over with but no jesus says i gave her time to repent and look but she refuses to repent She knows she's doing evil to the church and she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. He's even giving them time to repent. And I will strike her children, her followers, dead. I know that sounds so harsh sometimes for us. But you see also the kindness of our Lord in the midst of this severity. Jesus is incredibly gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But if he's slow to anger, that also means eventually he gets angry. Eventually his patience runs out because he's still holy. He's still just. He will not let sin and evil slide or destroy his church. And so when he acts, everyone will know he's just. And that's what we see. Look at 23. 23. I'm right in the middle of 23. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. I have those eyes of fire that look right into your heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. I am just, in other words. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. I believe that Jesus is actually mocking Jezebel here. I believe she was claiming as a prophetess to say, I'm speaking the deep things of God here, the secrets of God. And Jesus says, no, those are the deep things of Satan. Those are just lies from the pit of hell. And Jesus says, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come, well, what's Jesus asking them to do here? Do you recognize this this language of any other burden? It comes right out of Acts fifteen, doesn't it? The Jerusalem Council, as the churches met and were talking about circumcision and how to deal with the Gentiles, they decided Gentiles should not be circumcised, but they also said this. Acts fifteen twenty eight says this: For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you and listen no greater burden than these requirements. So what are those? That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from sexual immorality. Those are the sins of Jezebel, aren't they? Idolatry, sexual immorality. What's Jesus saying? Run from Jezebel. Run from this evil. Repent. Run to me. I am the only way for you to escape this judgment. Well, the same is true for us, isn't it? Just in in case you don't know, our hearts are still idol factories. We're not part of this Thyatiran church, but our hearts produce idols all the time. We deserve the same wrath that terrifies us in this passage, the same wrath that is promised to these Thyatirans who are not repenting. But the hope in all of this is that Jesus lived and died for idolaters like us that he was the one who obeyed God in our place, not committing idolatry once, and went to the cross, paid for our sin, and rose from the dead so that we could be free from idolatry and sin and that we would be holy as God intended. We can escape this judgment only by clinging to Christ in faith. That's what Jesus is giving to this Thyatira church. That is your hope. Your hope is in me. And he continues on that there's great comfort in this. But before I move any further, I need to say something about this part of the passage. I hope, I hope you can see Thyatira had a lot of great things going for it. Right? A great commendation. So many things about this church reminds me of Sovereign Grace. The things he thanks God for, the love and the service and the perseverance, I thank God for that in this church all the time. But there's a lesson here for us, a warning even. Just because we are growing in grace and God is at work here, it doesn't mean we are safe from this kind of idolatry. By God's grace, I I believe we have not tolerated any sin like this openly, publicly, in any way. That doesn't mean it will never happen. But we are about to move into a shiny new building, right? And settle in for the first time in, gosh, I don't even know how many years. 15 years, is it? More than that, probably it'll be really easy to settle in and think, you know what, we've arrived. We don't have to set up anymore, right? We can't be kicked out of our building anymore by the government. And it can be so easy to let down our guard and let false teaching like this sneak in right under our nose. And all of a sudden, we have a lot more to lose. We might think, well, we can't discipline that sin. We have a building to pay for. We can't call out that evil, that, that struggle, and that group. They'll just leave. People are just waiting for an opportunity to leave California. You can't push their buttons. You can't call out sin like that. Brothers and sisters, pray for this church. We're not Thyatira yet, but it'd be easy to get there. And we need God's help not to get there. So we've seen the commendation. We've seen the correction. Let's look, lastly, at the comfort. These last verses that are incredibly encouraging. Verse 26, the one who conquers, who overcomes, that's the language there, who keeps my works unto the end. What's he talking about there? It's not overcoming by your own works, right? It's faith in Christ he just talked about. It's overcoming by clinging to Christ, running from Jezebel, running from idolatry, and grasping Jesus by faith. Persevering faith in Jesus is what he's talking about here. And to those that have this persevering faith, what promises, what comfort does he give? Look at verse 26 again. To him, I will give authority over the nations. They'll rule with Jesus, in other words. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Now, I hope you recognize a lot of those words. They're straight out of Psalm 2. This incredible messianic psalm about the rule and the reign of the Messiah. When the nations boast and and taunt God, and God just laughs in their face. And he sets his king on Zion. And his king, Psalm 2.8, will break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That's speaking of Christ. But the shocking thing in these verses is that the church joins Christ in that rule and reign and judgment. Think of the grace of God in that. The Thyatirans, the ones that tolerated evil, are going to be set up as judges? You're going to trust their judgment? I mean, it doesn't take long to think about even ourselves. I know my wicked heart. I know you have the same struggles. God would trust us to judge this world, to judge alongside of Christ? Well, it's only because of the transforming power of the grace of God in our life. What we will become in Christ. This is the incredible reversal here, where sin and idolatry reigned over God's people in Adam. Because of Christ, they will reign and rule over this world with Christ. They will be the ones, victor, uh, the victors in this. They will be the ones that have dominion and control over this world just as God intended it from the beginning. Just as Chad was talking about this morning, that's this beautiful picture of recreation that Christ does in us. That's the promise. We'll take part of that in Christ one day. And not just that. There's even more. Look at verse 28. And I will give him the morning star. This, I believe, is a reference to Numbers 24, this prophecy of Balaam, which says this. I say to him, but, or see him, excuse me, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Talking of the Messiah. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. This ruler, this Messiah in Psalm 2, with staff, with the scepter, is also the star, this morning star here. And at the end of this book... Revelation 22. Jesus says of Himself, "I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star." Do you see the comfort here? The gift to the one that overcomes, the one that repents of this idolatry, it runs to Christ. The ultimate gift in the end is Jesus Himself, not just His benefits. We are in Christ, communion with Christ for all of eternity. Repentance can cost us in this world. It can cost us a lot to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Friends, family, reputation, jobs, you name it. But the ultimate gift doesn't even compare, doesn't even compare to what we lose. In the end, we get Jesus. We get Jesus. And that's all we really need. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray that God would help us hear. Father, we are thankful for this letter. Thankful for your work. Thankful for the finished work of your Son. That Christ has done everything to help us to draw near, to sanctify us, to make us holy so that we will one day be glorified and be judges along with Christ. God, help us as we battle the sin and the flesh in this world. If any of us here are harboring sin and idolatry, refusing to repent because of the cost, because of what we might lose, help us to see the end of that is destruction and our only hope is Jesus. And he is an incredible reward. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.